0: Good evening. Good evening. You're all very welcome. My name is Shane Mulhall, and the title to the talk, to make sure you're in the right room, is The Art of Parenting, The Teenage Years. I suppose the first question is, did your children send you to this talk? <laughs> anyway, I'm going to start with the bad news, and the bad news is that if we are here because we have teenagers, then it's a little late. It's not absolutely too late, but it will be more difficult. It's like building a wall. You can't put on the last brick correctly and expect to have a good wall. If the foundations aren't correct, anything after that will not work. And for this reason it's necessary in this talk to speak about all stages of a child's life. Briefly, hopefully, giving most attention to the teenage years. And then the whole system or approach, I hope, will make sense. And the talk deals with principles. And these have been mainly outlined to the school of philosophy by a man referred to as Sri Shankaracharya, an Indian sage. And so the talk deals with principles, and it doesn't deal with specifics. I like should a 13-year-old go to a discotheque or not. That's not answered in the talk. Now, having heard the talk, which hopefully will be under an hour, then there'll be a refreshment break, and then you can come back with your questions and we'll see what answers arise, and they can either deal with principles or specifics. Whatever you wish. Now, I don't know where I got this from. It's obviously from some newspaper, and it's written by a lady... And she describes my dad when I was aged. So my dad, when I was aged four years old, my daddy can do anything. Five years old, my daddy knows a whole lot. Six years old, my dad is smarter than your dad. Eight years old, my dad doesn't know exactly everything. Ten years old, In the olden days when my dad grew up, things were sure different. Twelve years old. Oh well, naturally father doesn't know anything about that. He's too old to remember his childhood. Fourteen years old. Don't pay any attention to my father. He's so old-fashioned. Twenty-one years old. Him, my lord, he's hopelessly out of date. Twenty-five years old. Dad knows a little bit about it, but then he should because he's been around for so long. 30 years old, maybe we should ask Dad what he thinks. After all, he's had a lot of experience. 40 years old, I wonder how Dad would have handled it. He was so wise and had a world of experience. And 50 years old, I'd give anything if Dad were here now, so I could talk this over with him too bad I didn't appreciate how smart he was. I could have learned a lot from him. Whether man or woman, it makes no difference, but I think we recognize that sequence of events. George Bernard Shaw said about his father, when he was 18, he thought his father knew nothing, and when he was 25, he was surprised by how much his father had learned in the last seven years. (laughs) So, Well, it's a pity to sort of miss out on the parents during those vital years. So, why does a human being have parents at all? The reason is, is because he's completely different to other animals. The ordinary animal is dominated by instinctive intelligence. And that is there from birth. And this gives the young dog or cat or whatever independence after a number of weeks. But for the human being, instinctive intelligence doesn't dominate. In fact, emotional or intellectual intelligence hopefully dominates in the end. And these take a long time to develop. And because they take a long time to develop, the human being needs parents. Another aspect of this need is that in the human being there is the good and the bad as the Shankaracharya says, there has never been a school for corruption, and yet it is much more in use. And this only proves that the acquisition of the bad is easy and more natural compared to civilized and disciplined education in the good. And it's important to appreciate this, that the good and bad exists in every human being. If I was to ask all of you Are any of you anti-Semitic? You might say, "No, I'm not," or you might all say, "No, we're not." But if you had been reared in Germany in the 1920s and 30s, some of you would have joined the Nazi Party. The bad in you would have been drawn out by education and company. And as I said, the good and bad exist in every child. That means your children as well. The only question is. What reaches the child first, the good or the evil, disciplined or undisciplined? The job of an educator is to provide the good to the child before anything else reaches him or her. And the third aspect of the need for parents with regard to human beings is human capacity. The human capacity greatly exceeds the capacity of an animal. So if you get one evil dog in the world, it doesn't really upset the world. You just put him down. But if you get a Hitler, you can get untold destruction, way beyond what any animal could do on its own. And the most dangerous creature in the whole creation is a half-educated human being. So how a human uses his body, mind and heart depends on education and company. And Shankracharya Shankaracharya says that education and company are met in the home, school and society. If all have the same point of view, you produce a unified man, otherwise a mixed up, confused and vigorous being. So the three great influences, home, school, and the company that he or she keeps in society are under the control and authority of the parents. The parents determine the home environment, they determine the school that is attended, and they determine the company kept or the exposure to society. Now, in order to understand this approach, it's important to understand the nature of a child. Are those particular aspects of the nature that are relevant to this discussion. So the first aspect that's important to appreciate is that the child is full of faith and devotion. And you recognize this in a young child. It'll come home from school and it'll say something is true because teacher says so. Now teacher could be as thick as two short planks and completely erroneous, but as long as teacher says so, then it's true and you may have the experience of a child it's in my experience of walking past the stairs in a sort of a semi-dream and a child speaking and jumping at the same time saying catch me daddy and so you wake up out of your dream and you catch the child now the child has absolute total faith that you will catch it if you asked an adult to do that he'd want a parachute a mattress at the bottom of the stairs And certainly somebody better than yourself. Now this full of faith and devotion has its potentially bad side. Because the child imitates the good and the bad. Whatever it is exposed to, it imitates. So it will imitate your fears and your prejudices and your doubts. No child is born saying, rain is miserable. No child is born saying, I hate washing up. The child learns this. It imitates it. It says, I love my daddy, and my daddy thinks the rain is miserable. So it imitates the father and thinks the rain is miserable too. The second thing about the nature of a child is that it is completely lacking in discrimination. It begins to develop it over a period of time and doesn't enjoy it in its fullness until it is 16. But initially, it's completely lacking in its discrimination. And to give a story, once when I was waiting to be dealt with by a dentist, I was reading this little story in a magazine, and this lady, her son, had come home from school, and he didn't understand how the earth went dark at night and got bright in the morning. So he asked his mother to explain that. She was a highly intelligent woman, so she got out an orange and a torch. And she said that the orange represented the earth, and the torch represented the sun. And she got the child to look at both sides of the orange, and he could determine that one side was brighter, and the other side was darker. And she revolved the orange so that the first side now became dark, and the second side became bright. And she said, do you understand? And he said, absolutely. But what happens if it's an apple? (laughs) You see, a child doesn't have reason. When you say to a child, take your feet off that couch, it just thinks it's that couch. Right? (laughs) It takes a long time before it realizes that things can be universal. And the Shankaracharya says that it's like a man. The child is like a man having money and standing at the crossroads. He or she could be taken to any road, good or bad, and it would not in the least matter to a child. The third aspect of a child is that a child has no wisdom. Children can become highly informed, but not wise. So do not be fooled by the high level of information. And again, the Shankaracharya says, that wisdom comes after experience and he must come into the world, pick up problems and face all the steps and see the result again and again. Only then wisdom would arise. In a school, a child has not the responsibility to face the consequences and thus understanding and wisdom would not visit him. And the last aspect with regard to the nature of a child, is that work needs to take place early. What you notice is is that as you get older, it becomes more and more difficult to learn new things. It's a bit like a bamboo. When it's green and young, then you can bend it into any shape. When it becomes mature and hard, then it will not adopt a new shape easily. Again, the Shankaracharya says that the future responses of these children in adult life will also emanate from the material they have received in their childhood. It is rare to get over that. Development and refinement of the same line is possible, but complete changeover is very difficult and tedious. So it is better that one starts early and makes the best use of nature. And I'm sure you recognize this, trying to change habits as you get older and older is more and more difficult. Well, what is parenting? And the first thing to appreciate is that the first relationship in family is between husband and wife. And this is absolutely essential. The children are never put first for their sakes. And what is parenting is to fulfill the need of the child. And what is the need of a child And the need of a child is to grow in fullness with regard to its body, mind and heart. And in order to have a direction to this growth, one needs a vision. If you're going to create a beautiful garden, you have a vision for that garden. You just don't go into a horticultural center and buy a whole load of plants and stick them down. You have a vision for how the garden will be in its maturity. And then you pick and select that which is necessary to fulfill that vision. Well, if you have children, it's necessary to have a vision for the children. And the vision should be for them as human beings, also as Irish men and women, also as members of this family, and also as individuals. So the vision for them as human beings is that they might be followers of truth. As Irish men and women, that they will take the best qualities of the Irish, that they're open, friendly, hospitable, all these qualities. As members of this family, well there may be ideals that this family particularly holds to. Family is honest, does not lie, or all these sorts of things. And then it's necessary to have a vision for the particular child, because it will have particular talents and traits. And there's no point in rearing a child without a vision for it. Now, the fullness of body comes with health, agility, strength and grace. And measure is the key. So a measure of sleep, food, drink, work and play. And the body will come to its fullness. The fullness of mind comes with the development of reason. Not a mind full of information, but a mind that can analyze, a mind that can decide, and a mind that can reason. And this is primarily being able to refer to true principles, i.e. the application of the universal to the particular. And this allows the child to deal with every situation it will face in life. Examples of true principles are that all men are equal, life is sacred, honesty is the best policy, render unto every man his due. And there are millions of them. And the child's mind is trained to refer to principle. And fullness of heart comes with love, as manifested through the virtues. So the child is guided to be patient, generous, forgiving, have absence of anger, purity, compassion, courage, steadfastness. All these wonderful qualities. Well, last week I was looking up the definition of a word which translated as herdsman. A herdsman. And this was a Sanskrit word and it said that a herdsman is somebody whose activities are cherishing, guarding, nourishing, preserving, defending, protecting, keeping, observing, and maintaining. And it struck me that these are the activities of a parent, of a good parent. Well, how do we actually parent? And the first thing to remember is, and this is a quotation from Khalil Gibran, He says, and a woman who held a babe against her bosom said, speak to us of children. And he said, your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. And that's most important to remember. Being a parent is a bit being like a bus driver. Your job is to pick up and deliver. You deliver the passenger safely, in good shape, them having enjoyed the journey, and you let them off at the stop that they want to get off, not the stop you want to bring them to. Otherwise it's kidnapping. <laughs> Now, there is a relationship, obviously, between parent and child. And the Shankaracharya gives a beautiful image of this. He says, the relation between parents and their children is also harmoniously regulated through love and discipline. Love gives them support for development, and discipline keeps them within the established order of family and society. The mind of a child is very tender and it is liable to take any shape or form and can be distorted very quickly as well. If too much love is provided, then the child may turn willful and if too much discipline is forced, then he may close in and resent from outside. Thus he needs both, just in the right measure. The child is pliable, like a refined clay of the potter who is about to throw a pot. The potter uses both hands, one inside and the other outside. The hand inside is the hand of love, which gives support for expansion, and the hand outside is the hand of discipline, which keeps a firm control on the expansion to keep it within the required form. This hand is prescriptive and regulative in action. So parenting is to do with love and discipline and both are required just in the right measure. Now, there are stages in the child's life and these stages have different requirements. The whole art of parenting is summed up in a single sentence. Up to the age of five, treat the child with love and play. From five to sixteen, put him under discipline, and afterwards, treat him like a friend. And if we understood that fully, we wouldn't have to listen to the rest of the talk. So just to take these stages as briefly as we can, from naught to five, it is love only. No discipline, just love. And you know this if you've ever thrown a puff. The first hand that you use is the hand that expands the clay. And you let it expand for a while before you bring the outer hand for it to adopt a shape. You don't need the outer hand initially. Same way with a child. And Shankaracharya explains this, because the thought of no discipline up to the age of five might seem frightening. But there is an explanation. The child is a tender object. For five years, save him from any pressure on his mind or body and feed him with love and affection. All that he needs to be taught, he should get through love and play. He will respond easily to love. So getting him to do anything that you want them to do is not done through discipline, but through love and play. The mind of a child is new and tender. It has all the capacity to receive knowledge, acquire and hold it. The child's mind is not endowed with reason, and this aspect does not start at least for some time. Here, He is only ready to receive whatever is offered to him. He would not be able to reason with it. His tender mind will receive it and will hold it until it becomes a sound capital when he has grown up to look into the reason of things. Early stage only needs providing the right material. So that's all that's required up to age five, providing the child with the right material. From five to 10, which is the next stage, it's a combination of love and discipline. Here, discipline is introduced, but doesn't dominate. So from five to 10, his capacity to acquire simple knowledge is great. He would easily take whatever is offered. The simpler the teaching, the better. And this is where you introduce all these beautiful principles to a child, i.e., that always speak the truth, harm no creature, life is sacred. Between five and ten, you give them all these beautiful principles. However, it has its own challenges. This stage is such that if he likes something, he will pick it up quickly, and he goes much by his liking. The dominant sound is, I want... Anything new is full of interest for them. Any system runs only on order and repetition, and this runs against novelty. Anything which does not bind them to order is full of novelty and thus naturally agreeable. This is a critical state, for there is the possibility of being unmethodical, loose, Disorganized, organized, ignoring the orderly, willful whiling away time and picking up rather crude and low activities in which he can waste all his golden energy. Company will rule his life. Give him discipline and he will become disciplined. This stage needs a systematic way of living. The child must form some habits of doing his work, so that it becomes a part of his nature. If one has not made a habit of study, then later on no further study will be possible, and further and new knowledge in the world will remain a closed chapter. And all subjects need some attention every day. So this is the stage between five and ten that order is established in the life. This is the age that you teach a child to keep his or her room tidy. Not at 15 or 16. It doesn't work then, as we all know. This is where writing becomes beautiful. This is where a child is introduced to doing some work around the house. Try get a 16-year-old to start that. We often leave it far too late, this introduction of order. And another point of interest with regard to the child is that between 5 and 10, most experiences are directly related to himself. All relations will be his relations to other beings or things. He is the most important thing, and he does not really grasp the importance of other beings. So for a child between 5 and 10, he doesn't grasp that mummy and daddy have a relationship which has nothing to do with him. What he thinks is that mummy has a relationship with me and daddy has a relationship with me. All relationships are relationships with me. And this is why when mummy and daddy are talking and me wants to talk, me just interrupts. Because everybody's related to me. Now, this may make him or her appear incredibly selfish. of you don't understand why they're doing this all the time. But you need to understand, this is how they relate. As far as they're concerned, they're the center of the universe, and everybody has a relationship with them, and that's the only relationship. So, they'll do things like, if they want to watch telly, they stand in front of it. It's as simple as that, it's me and the telly. I want to watch it, it's my relationship with the telly. The fact that somebody else wants to watch the telly, they're oblivious to Now, this is the stage of I want. And what anybody else wants is irrelevant. And you notice this about children's Christmas lists at this stage. They become incredibly long. In fact, they would use up the entire family's life savings just to satisfy. The thought that somebody else might want something is irrelevant. So the third stage, which we're getting to the teenage years now, is 10 to 16, and its characteristic is love and more discipline. So discipline begins to become stronger and stronger. So from 10 years to 16, there's a rise in mental activity, and he would learn to relate things and find out the causes of things. He would learn to know the reasons, but he may apply them purposefully towards development. And this is the stage of strength of mind being developed by the child, which would become his capital for life. Now, since he has no worldly responsibilities, he may not use this development much, but he will be well prepared to use it. And it's between 10 and 16 that the child wants to understand why. So he asks questions like, what's the difference between the political parties? And why did Germany go to war? And this is where, through development of reason, he begins to relate things to causes. Now, in this phase, between 10 and 16, this is the stage that, to the degree that you can wisely back off from directing the child in every single move, you do so. It's like this, when a child can't hold a spoon, and it needs to be fed, you hold the spoon for it. But once it begins to master the spoon, you're meant to back off and let it feed itself. Between 10 and 16 the child begins to develop reason and you need to back off. You need to give it the space. If you constantly tell it what's right and what's wrong and you give it no scope for mental development, then it'll just get totally frustrated. So one needs to learn to back off between 10 and 16 to be aware of their development. And in this phase, they earn their increasing freedom. They can't demand it. They can't say things like, I'm 12 and therefore I want freedom. They earn it. So they must behave maturely to be treated maturely. And this is the phase where I want is replaced by what is reasonable having considered the needs of others. On this basis, most of us are under 16. Now, as regards the relationships, his appreciation changes. So by the time he reaches 10, he starts to appreciate that there are other centers of interest as well. He would know exactly who is being referred to in conversation and grasp the relationship from 10 onwards he also learns to be responsible. He's trained not only to understand others, but to work out his relationship and its value to others. And at this stage, it's quite possible for him to become willful. So this is the period to rub against this willfulness and bring in tighter control. After 10, he's responsible and needs honor and respect. He becomes equal, that's equal to adults. He becomes equal so far as human dignity is concerned and is able to move into adult life. He is now almost a part of the social setup, a person with some independence. He gets whatever he does. He's praised for his good deeds and is fully answerable for all his misdeeds as well. And again, this stage obviously is extremely important because this is a stage that they develop ideas and opinions about everything. And because of their desire for independence, normally their ideas run totally contrary to yours. If you ended up uh, agreeing with the music they listened to, they would switch to other music. It's important not to be the same as you or to agree with you on anything. So they develop all sorts of ideas. And now, they're immature, obviously, between 10 and 16. They're not fully developed. So you do not crush them. You do not say to them, that's pathetic, that's stupid, or any of these things. They are equal so far as human dignity is concerned, so you never, ever, ever take away their dignity. And what's required here is refutation. You show him or her that the idea or opinion doesn't stand up to reason. Ideally, they are brought to see it themselves. So for example, a father told me that his 14-year-old daughter had announced to him that she was never going to marry. She was just going to have babies. So this frightened him. (laughs) 14 year old daughters are absolutely capable of frightening fathers. But anyway, she frightened them. So he, he asked me about this and I said to him, well, go back to her and ask her why she hates babies. See, so he goes back to her and I gave him other instructions, which I'll say, go back to her and ask her, why do you hate babies? And of course, you know, she didn't understand this because she had declared that she wanted babies and she's been asked why she hated babies. And he said, well, say I was to die now, or I moved away from this family, would it be a loss to you? And she said, yes. I said, well, so why would you deprive a baby of its father? Why would you hate it so much that you would consciously deprive it of a father? Well, she had no answer for that. To this stage, she's now pregnant, and she's about 17, <laughs> so it's helped anyway for three years. But there, you don't tell her she's an idiot. You ask a question. You show the idea up for its limitations. So she comes to a true answer herself. This teaches them to reason. And it also teaches modesty in their opinions. You recognize this between the ages of 10 and 16. There's very little (coughs) modesty with regard to opinions. I'm right. And you don't know what you're talking about. And all that sort of stuff. And it also teaches respect for your wisdom and experience. And if I can tell a story from uh, my own fathering, my daughter went to babysit for this man. And she was about 14 at the time. And this man, on driving her home, said to her, do you ever go to discotheques? And she said, no, my father doesn't let me. And he said, well, why don't you go? And she said, my father doesn't let me. And he said, well, you should express your independence. You should go. You need to grow up. And all these sorts of things. It's the last time she ever babysat for that house, but anyway. (laughs) So he's advocating to her to express her independence and all this by disobeying her father and going to the discotheque. And she finished the conversation with, my father loves me and I trust him. And he shut her. Well, if you use refutation rather than crushing, then the child will come to be modest in their opinions and will also come to respect your wisdom and experience. So, the next phase, the balance of the teenage years, 16 plus, and this is based on friendship. The age of 16 is a point of departure in the life of an individual. Up to this age the accumulation of capital comes to its fulfillment. Until this time he or she stands in need of an ever-present guide and teacher to keep him under discipline and in common terms give him knowledge. At this time The change in his being takes place and he takes a plunge into a responsible world. He moves by himself. He's no longer a child. He takes a stand. Nature demands that having been provided with all that nature has to give, he must now pick up the challenge and use his nature consciously, that is responsibly, and create a world of his own He does not become the lord of nature, but he takes a first step towards that. Now he will expand and take charge of his own development. The body, mind and emotions are now all under his control, and he will of course use them the way he's been trained to use them. A new life begins. His powers, enshrined in physical, mental and emotional bodies, Constitute fullness, not as fully developed and mature powers, but only as initial powers which he will have to develop. And this stage, i.e. 16, is the completion of the preparatory stage, putting him at the point of entry to the universal stage. Now this is the equivalent of somebody who's passed their driving test recently. They can now take the car out on their own, but they're not experienced drivers. They're liable to make mistakes, and in a way they have to be allowed to make their mistakes. You can't hold the wheel for them, nor can you have a dual control car. You can only advise them at this stage. And so this is the age of friendship. Shankaracharya says that after the age of 16, he should be treated as a friend. He would not like orders, but needs advice and counsel. He would like to be respected and treated as an equal being for his self needs recognition. He no longer wants to be your son or daughter. They want to be themselves now. Now he is ready for expansion and development as an independent being. Responsible work begins and he starts to learn behavior of a universal type with other beings on his own stand. And self-respect is most important after 16. And that is why the scriptures say, treat him like a friend. And a lady came to me who was having difficulty with her daughter, and I quoted this to her, and she said, what does it mean to treat your daughter, your adult daughter, like a friend? Now, her adult daughter had just moved in with a boyfriend, which was absolutely against the standards and the traditions of that family. So this was extremely hurtful and upsetting to the mother. And of course, the mother went berserk, and the entire relationship between herself and the daughter broke down. And she said, what do you mean I should treat her like a friend? And I said to her, well, okay, we'll take my daughter. I said, let's say Caroline moves out of our house, the Hall house, and moves in with a boyfriend. And you strike up a conversation with her about that. How would you speak to her? Would it be any different than how you spoke to your own daughter? She said to me completely differently. She said I'd be far more gentle and understanding and I would sort of question it, but I wouldn't be going berserk and trying to wring her neck. (laughs) And you notice how different you are when you ask your son or daughter, well, what career do they have in mind? And you start praying before they answer. because you don't want a ballet dancer in your family. (laughs) But you notice how you're interested in other people. You're very open. They tell you what they want to do. You say, that's very interesting. Sounds good to me. Because you treat them like a friend. When your child becomes an adult, you have to become their friend. And when you become their friend... The sound of your voice changes. You do not try to become their friend before they're 60, but at 60. This does not mean that you're unfriendly to them up to 60, and then you 're a friend thereafter. Right? <laughs> but you do not try to become their friend before. And I just uh, reread a quote. Shankaracharya says, until this time, that's 16, he stands in the need of an ever-present guide and teacher to keep him under discipline and in common terms give him knowledge. And this is a fatal error to try to be just a friend when the child is still in need of a parent or parents. It's like taking your eye off the ball at the last moment. and you shouldn't just become their friend, you should become their best friend otherwise you're going to be competing with the advice of 17 year olds so you need to become the best friend now there's still then the thorny situation of that they live at home and there are rules in this house So. As I explained to my children, I had done my job when they reached their 16th birthday. They were guests after 16. If they wished to leave, they were free to leave. But if they stayed, they stayed under the rules of this house. The house belonged to myself and my wife, and we established the rules. They were most welcome to stay. Maybe at 40 they should depart, but they're most welcome (laughs) to stay. unless they're providing for me in my old age. But that was their choice. After 16, it was their choice whether they wished to reside in the house and they would obey the rules of the house. But the rules of the house are not who they marry or what career they take up or whether they play a sport or not or how short their hair should be or how long it should be. They're not rules of the house. So, is there any difference between the father and mother role, particularly with teenagers? Now, the following is not an absolute, so it doesn't apply in every circumstance, but it is a trait, a common trait or a common tendency. The first thing is that the mother is the first teacher of the child and is the most important teacher. And the mother teaches or tends to teach in a particular way, or tends to parent in a particular way. And the Shankaracharya described it like this. He said, women have the capacity and possibility of getting around children more than men can ever achieve. They have certain natural instincts through which they can lure the children to the point where you want them to receive instructions. Even as adult men, you may recognize this. (laughs) Anyway. it It is absolutely natural and absolutely brilliant with regard to children. And if I can give you an example of it. If a child needs to eat the mother will persuade it to eat. The man will make it eat. So I've noticed this, well I used to notice it anyway when I was looking after the children. Say one of our children didn't want to eat something. They'd be sitting down there, there'd be cabbage on a plate and they wouldn't want to eat some food. And uh, let's say it was a very young child and my wife would bring it over to the window and say, look there's a little bird on the branch there and isn't it nice twittering away and the child would look at it for a while, and then my wife would say, now let's go back and we'll eat some cabbage. And the child would go back and eat cabbage. And when I was given the child, I'd say, now you're going to eat your cabbage. You will eat that cabbage. You will eat it because I said you're to eat it. Right? I don't care about the bird on the tree. What has that got to do with eating cabbage? <laughs> so uh, my wife would approach it completely differently to myself. just tell you this sort of uh, encouraging story because I finally learned the trick that it was actually persuasion rather than instruction. So one day, I was left with Caroline, and she was three or something like that at this stage, and Caroline had a fixation with the little red button at the back of the fridge. This is the button you press to defrost <laughs> at the fridge. And there's no way of stopping the process. Once you press that button, that fridge will defrost. And there was many a morning we would come down, not having seen Caroline, having pressed this button, and there would be a flood on the kitchen floor. And anyway, I was looking after Caroline. The fridge door is open. And I'm looking at her, and I see her break into a trot towards this fridge door to press the button and I had my car keys with a little uh, alarm box on it and if you press it you know, a little red button lights up or a little light lights up so I said to Caroline would you prefer to play with this and she turned on her heels and came back to play with the little box and there the child was not being deprived of anything but was being offered something better as far as the child was concerned does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Now, as charya says, the women have the capacity and possibility of getting around children more than men can ever achieve. So, because of tenderness, natural tenderness, and this power of persuasion, the mother is a more important factor at the earlier stage. But the balance of influence changes as the child gets older and it's all very natural. It doesn't mean the mother's not loved as much anymore or anything like that, but the balance of influence changes. Coming up to 16, the opinions of the child get stronger and stronger and stronger. They're virtually (coughs) defiant at this stage. And also the desire for independence gets stronger. Now, when opinions are very, very strong, then persuasion is not as effective just doesn't work as well. And here what is required is obedience to authority or reason. It's much more effective at that stage. The second thing is if the lady's system is very detailed, like the coat is to be hung on the left hook and the cup is to go into that drawer and not the other drawer, what you'll find is, if that system is very detailed, a 16-year-old may get 150 instructions every day from its mother. And it will not accept it. It won't accept that detailed instruction. As far as the child is concerned, they will experience their independence and adulthood being cramped. And what you can see... I mean, if the father uses persuasion, it's exactly the same thing. But with the persuasion system failing, this can lead to an awful lot of frustration and an awful lot of anger for the person using persuasion. And this is particularly true between an adult daughter and the mother. Because you now may have two detailed systems operating in the house. And this is like two cooks in a kitchen. <laughs> So you just cannot have two different detailed systems operating in the one house. And what is required is reason at this stage of their development. Now, just as ladies excel in the use of persuasion, men excel in the use of reason. For this reason, as the child gets older and will now respond to reason, the man's role of parenting grows stronger. As was said, the latter stages of the child's development will involve much more reason and much less persuasion. So the man and the woman must use reason and not persuasion. Yes, I'll try and say these very quickly then. There are six harmful characteristics which the Shankaracharya say have to be uprooted. This will be very depressing because you'll recognize all six in yourself.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, the first, albeit he uses a technical term in Sanskrit, I'm just using a sort of more casual English term to describe it. The first type is the sleeper type. They are beings who are so prone to sleep that they simply keep on sleeping. They hardly rise, and even if they rise, soon they will find their way to bed again to enjoy their sleep as much as they can. There is very little activity left for them. You may recognize this overabundance of sleep. Then there are the twilight zone dwellers. And this is neither sleep nor the waking state, always lost somewhere in between. Such people can hardly see or hear anything. It is intoxication without an agent. They are are practically half asleep and half awake, so their mind is never on the spot to collect any information or knowledge. Frightening, isn't it? The third aspect is the fearful type. Such people are always terrified of everything. They can never have any adventure and would always resist new activities or situations unless pressed. The fourth aspect is anger. The angry type. It is a state of ignited fire in the mind which upsets all balance. One burns all one's energy, bakes it, and makes it ineffective or unproductive. It is like pouring boiling water over tender plants. Growth is stopped, and the plant gradually dries out and dies. The fifth are the lazy. Such characters have no desire to do any work, and would do anything to while away their time. It's practically a negation of time. You know, it's like having the whole weekend and you say there's no time to do the law. You could actually do the entire roads law. <laughs> and then there's the prolongers. Such characters would take ten hours to do a job which could easily be done in two hours. They just lengthen the process of work. You know, they go back and get a brush, then they go back again and get a pan, if they sweep up a bit of paper, they would read it. (laughs) 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 They just lengthen the process of work. They firstly do not attend to the instructions. And in the absence of instruction, they brood for long. And this goes on and on. I wonder what I'm supposed to be doing. That sort of thing. Afterwards, they might forget where they started, or what they were expected to do. They imagine unnecessarily to complicate the work, make mistakes, try to correct them again and again, until by lapse of time, utility at a work is lost, and no fruits are available. The sun has come down, there's no point in doing the gardening now. So there are six characteristics, and they are very dangerous in the human being they should be eliminated from the character. So to finish all of this, parenting is all contained in one sentence. Up to the age of five, treat the child with love and play. From five to sixteen, put him under discipline, and afterwards, treat him like a friend. Do this, and you'll have a friend for life, And the nation will be proud to have your children as its citizens. That's it. (laughs) Well, are we ready to start? Very good. So you need to put up your hand, then, if you wish to ask a question, and then the microphone can be given to you.
2: If there are differences in the responsibilities, in that the mother, for example, is the first teacher, then does the father have specific, clear responsibilities
0: to the children? Well, it's not that the father is totally redundant at the beginning, but he has a lesser role to play. And basically, his job is... Well, it's actually the job of emotion and reason. Both parties can and do provide emotion and reason. However, just as in the early stage it naturally befalls on the mother more to provide love, and as the Shankaracharya says, she excels in the art of persuasion, so it befalls on the man more to provide reason, later on in the child's development. Likewise, the man naturally excels in reason. Reason is required more at the later stage because the child, as I said, will not be persuaded anymore. It is now taking a stand in life. So sometimes the child will respond much more to reason. It will only agree with emotion when it agrees with it. It won't surrender to it. It will not surrender to persuasion anymore. Does that make sense? Uh, The way to look on it is not to sort of hand over the job to the man when the child gets to a certain stage. It's rather using a different weapon, if you want to call it that. So reason must come more into play as the child gets older and older rather than persuasion. And the reason you use persuasion at the start is because the child doesn't understand reason. All that's necessary for the child is to do it. Later on it needs to know why it's doing it. And ultimately, it needs to make a stand as to whether it agrees with that or not. So it's really a move from emotion to reason. And then once you get beyond 16, it's just friendship, which is love and reason. But if your question was to do with whether the mother relates to the daughter in a different way than the father relates to the daughter, or with sons, I'm not aware of any difference. Yes anybody else?
1: So, uh, you spoke about friendship but well, I would say that I've had a friendship with my daughter since she was born and my family have pointed that out and now she's a teenager she's just turned 13 and her emotions are extreme at times so how do you bring reason into highly charged emotional debate nearly, yes. as to why <laughs> I don't want something to happen? Yeah.
0: Well, well with I'm extreme difficulty.
1: <laughs> uh, or should I, should I back away? I don't know. It's a, it's a it, dilemma, really. No.
0: Is there a man in the situation? No, there isn't. No, all no. right. Well, that makes it more difficult. But anyway, what you have to use is reason. You will not win a shouting match, as mm. is probably already evidenced, and it won't work with persuasion. Mm. So it has to be reason. I met with some young ladies, I think they were about 13 or 14, they tell me things that they don't tell their parents, so they were basically, anyway, unfolding their lives to me. They were saying that they just wanted to do whatever they wanted to do, which sounds very reasonable, as <laughs> far as they're concerned. I asked them, do they think this was reasonable? And, I, and I, they said yes. Or this particular girl said yes. So I asked her, do you have a younger brother? And she had a five-year-old brother. And I said to her, well what happens if he started to do what he wanted to do? What would the house be like? And she said, it would be chaos. And I said, exactly. Exactly. You can't have more than one system in a household. Everybody has to come under what the system is, i.e. the family values. And so, it is not valid to say, because I want to, I will. Once somebody gets to 13, they have to become aware of the presence of other people and their needs, and they have to establish their relationship based on love and reason. But what you find the difficulty is, is perhaps the sound of the voice. The For, no, yeah. I'm talking about your, your sound, right. not hers. <laughs> 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 if I may say, it's like when I was a young adult, and I'd be, say, 18 or 19, i go home, and my mother would say to me, you should get your hair cut. You know that sound? That horrible sound of the mother. And you determine to grow your hair to your ankles. <laughs> right? So that sound has to start to go. Now not a thirteen, all right? But you begin to give space. The child would begin to wear its hair in the way it wants to wear it. It won't wear that sort of pageboy fringe that you love (laughs) and it'll start to pick its own clothes more and more. But all within acceptable standards of the family. So you're allowed to set the standards, but you can't set the colours. And you have to appeal to reason.
1: It's really about reason.
0: It is, it is.
1: And that's not always so easy.
0: No, but the thing is don't fight emotion with emotion when emotion goes out of control the only thing that will bring it back is exhaustion or reason and you can appeal to reason because they are beginning to develop reason Now that demands a lot of you but you have to find it and this is not a story of a daughter but my son Robert he came home from school one day and this is John Scott's school and perfect as it is, he was being bullied. And I'm the, the leader of the school of philosophy, so he thinks I have some influence on John Scott of School. So he basically asked me to pull rank on the headmaster and make sure this bullying stopped. So I said to him, no. I wasn't going to interfere at all. I said, you're going to have to deal with it. He was 12 at the time. I said, you're going to have to deal with it. So I asked him, what's happening? And he said, well, this guy is thumping me. So I said, thump him back. And he said to me, well, we're not allowed to. That's the rule of the school. And I said, well, I'll take the rap for that. You just do it. If Dr. Telfer gives out to you, you say my father instructed me. (laughs) So uh, if I had to go to detention or do 100 lines, I was willing to take that punishment. (laughs) So, So I said, you thump him back. And he said, are you sure about this? And I said, yes. When he hits you, you hit him back, and then he said to me, but he's bigger than him. I said, it makes no difference, when he hits you, hit him back, so he said, but he'll probably win, and I said, it makes no difference, when he hits you, hit him back, and he says, but I'd probably cry, and I said, it makes no difference, when he hits you, hit him back, so he agreed, He said, all right, and then I said, now, when he hits you and you hit him back then you tell him that when he hits you you will always hit him back and you will never ever ever give up you tell him that so I asked him had he got the words clear in his mind he said absolutely so I'd come home that evening and he was sitting it was 11 o'clock at night and he was sitting there with tears so the next day I'd come home at about 11 o'clock at night and there's this bright barrel chested man <laughs> sitting there and he said to me It worked. So I said to him, what happened? And he said, well, I was coming down the the stairs and he thumped me. So I thumped him back. Then he tried to trip me and I tripped him back. And then he followed me into the toilets. And he said, Mulholl, you're dead. (laughs) 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 He said, and then I said to him, every time you hit me, I will hit you back and I will never, ever, ever give up. And he said, okay, let's forget about it. (laughs) So then I explained to myself, nobody starts a fight that will never end. Does that make sense? You will not start a fight that's going to go on forever. And I said, that's all you were doing. You were just pointing out to this boy that the fight would never end. And therefore he would abandon it. It's a waste of time at that stage. So, that's reason. that's reasonable advice it works well first of all the other boy stopped being a bully which was helpful to him and my son became more independent and self-reliant and didn't have to use the rank of his father to get him out of bad situations so the key for you or for anybody is to have true principle to have true principle and okay, that takes a bit of work to be able to refer to a true principle but if you can, if you, first of all, if you practice them yourself, then you will find it easy to refer to a true principle. And true principle is very appealing. Even 13-year-olds like it.
1: Well, I find that I probably have to develop some fear and yes. principles yes. as an adult.
0: Yes, no, absolutely. You absolutely. Know, and that, that's the challenge, maybe. Yes, exactly. I mean, it'd be sufficient from tonight if you realised that either emotional dominance or persuasion will not work as they get older and older. Will not work. So, yes.
3: Thank you. I just wanted to ask about, um, you mentioned between naught to five, it's love and play, because I have this three-year-old and... uh, he constantly all day long says, I hate you, he says it to other people, and he hits other children. and so uh, he's normal. <laughs> I can't find a, a loving, playful way to get him yes. to stop, so I have to use what I would think is discipline. But you said you never put stress on a child's yes. mind. So yep. could I playfully hit him back? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, That might be stretching it. (laughs) I said, you have to find a way. This is a pathetic example, all right? But anyway, I happen to have two eye teeth, right, which are sharp, and over a number of years managed to develop the ability to turn a silver mint into a polo mint by revolving the sweet on the tooth, all right? And it keeps you very quiet while you're doing this. It needs all concentration because you're like this and you're rolling your tongue around the street and you can get it to be a polo. All right. There's an end to the story, by the way. <laughs> so, when the children were younger, we went to France a lot. And I used to like the south of France. And I used to like to drive there, and that's about 850 miles, which is a long time to spend in a car with your loved ones. So-called. So... Cold. <laughs> So what I used to do is buy packets of silver mints. And they would, each of the children would be given one, and their job was to turn a silver mint into a poliment. <laughs> and you used to be able to get about 50 miles to a silver mint in absolute silence. <laughs> now, the other way of telling a child, you will be quiet, and I insist on in you be quiet, and you know your mother can't read a map and I'm lost, and all that sort of stuff, just won't work how can a child be quiet for any length of time? It's not meant to be quiet. It's not meant to be forced into silence. But you can occupy it and then if it's occupied it will be silent. And by the way it's absolutely valid obviously to give reward for good behavior. So whether it's a sweet or even a silver mint for every time it says it loves as opposed to hate and then you can deduct and back for every time it says hate, it'll learn the lesson very quickly. Find a sweet it likes or something that it likes and reward it with that for using the word love as opposed to hate and give it a a negative inducement for doing the opposite. You have to find a way. It's a sort of an emotional intelligence. It's not a rational thing. I mean, there's nothing rational about silver mints and silence, but it works and therefore it's valid. Okay, thank you. Yes, anybody else? It will come.
2: Just very briefly, is there ever any justification for corporal punishment? Yes. It's something that you haven't mentioned so far.
0: Yes. The talk was about uh, teenagers, and corporal punishment is absolutely invalid at that stage, so it has no benefit. It also has no benefit when the child is very young. The only validity to corporal punishment is to save the child from its own behavior. It's not valid out of anger that you're angry or it has disobeyed you or anything like that. But if there was, say, a trait in a child, and I'm talking between the age of 5 and 10, and it would not listen to persuasion or it wouldn't be persuaded and it couldn't hear the reason, which it most likely wouldn't, and it wouldn't come under authority, and this was dangerous for the child, then you use effectively fear. Now the fear is not the fear of being beaten. It's not a physical fear. It's the fear of loss of favor of the parent. Does that make sense? And if it's done in anger you can't do it at all. can't do it at all. You should refrain. So it can't be in anger and it needs to be absolutely measured, and it needs to be totally clean. For example, if you you slap the child on the hand, or something like that, you can't carry an annoyance for another hour. It's like when a, a prisoner comes out of prison, he's no longer a convict. He's immediately a free man. Once the punishment has been fulfilled, he's a free man. So if there is something like a slap, then once the punishment is administered. It has to be restoration of love and affection. Now, it's very, very rarely needed. Very, very rarely needed. Normally, we resort to it because we're not so confident in our reasoning ability or in our emotional intelligence. But occasionally, there are circumstances for the sake of the child. And if it is absolutely measured and it's given in love, and there is this restoration of the relationship immediately after the punishment, then it doesn't have a lasting effect. Is that right. this lady here.
3: When you said that you become friends with your child at 16, mm. do you literally mean 16? You know the way different children mature emotionally? Some children of 14 would seem to be 16. And say boys, for instance maybe at 17 or 18, they would be emotionally a 16-year-old girl's maturity. Do you know what no, I'm saying? Absolutely.
0: The gap is a little bit narrow there. It takes them a little bit longer. But anyway, the Shankaracharya says at age 16. Now, it's not clear to me whether he means the 16th year. Is it literally their birthday or, or what? But what I will say to you is this, is if you really observe your children, you notice them becoming an adult. Absolutely knows that a change takes place. It's even a physical change. You know, I have three daughters; two of them are now adults. It was so obvious, just by the way they looked, that they were no longer children. Does that make sense?
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've just got a and 17-year-old, and at 16, I wouldn't have been his friend. But now that he's 17, yes. I can see him coming out the other end. But other friends might have girls who are 16, who would be. No, absolutely. You could be the only thing you've
0: about. got to be careful of is that you really are seeing what's in front of you. I don't know if you remember the film Father of the Bride with Steve Martin and his daughter in her mid-twenties comes home with a fiancé and as she's telling him she's about to get married he superimposes a picture of her in pigtails in age about <laughs> six. So He can't abide the concept of this little six-year-old getting married. So you have to be careful about that. You've got to actually know what's in front of you. And we make both mistakes. We sometimes think when there's a 14-year-old in front of us, there's an adult. And sometimes when there's an 18-year-old, we think there's still a child. You have to get it right. (coughs) Literally, the relationship breaks down when you don't get it right. Because an adult will not be mothered and fathered as a child is. They refuse it point blank. They don't want it anymore. Uh, So you have to be wide awake to it. But is there a precise date? I'm not sure. But I think observation will always guide you. Okay,
2: thank you. Okay. Yes. Thanks. Um, enjoyed your lecture. I have a 14-year-old girl and a 12-year-old boy. And my philosophy had always have been to keep the arms around them, keep be close, long conversations, and that has worked this year. Yes.
0: <laughs> um, There's always a sad end to these stories.
2: You spoke about vision, and my vision and her vision This is exam year, and, you know, I find myself having the arguments that I never had before. Yes, exactly. And a uh, bit of a disaster, I feel. <laughs> yes. um, you know, so what I'm si- my question is, it's a simple question, Leaving the house tonight, she said to me, she was very inquisitive about me leaving and going to hear a lecture about teenagers. And I know she's going to be asking me, and if not tonight, tomorrow night or something, about the lecture. And I would love to detail the
0: lecture in total to her, to talk about everything that you (coughs) spoke about. Would you agree? Well, it would be very helpful to her. Children have no idea what it's like to be a parent. So it's not bad that they do come to know it. But don't expect full appreciation from a 14-year-old. I mean, that would be just a bridge too far and that would be unfair. We could always give a talk to the uh, teenagers. The other half of the talk, how to relate to your parents.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> then it'd be very interesting what questions they asked. <laughs> uh, don't be surprised about the arguments. It's absolutely natural. It's absolutely natural. There you have a young being and nature when I say nature, I don't mean just at a physical level, but physically, mentally and emotionally, nature is demanding of her to take up a separate life. That's what it is demanding of her. So you saying that Fina Fall or Fina Gael are the best party no longer satisfies. She wants to know why. Why there, And she wants to have her own decision. So you've got to give space. Plenty of space. And you must let them express their opinions. Now, not disrespectfully. But they must express them. And you give them the space. And you also can be very patient about this. So you find that they express opinions and they change them three weeks later. So if you wait long enough, they go. So, for example... I don't want my daughter my eldest daughter to go to Australia that's just something I don't want now if she decides to go that's fine but I don't want her to go so if she comes back in June she tells me I'm going to Australia now years ago I would have leapt up and I would have said what are you going for it's only beaches and sharks and uh, <laughs> you know and, uh, yeah yeah you know, all that sort of stuff and I would have crushed it I said, they have no culture, and how could you leave a country like this, and all that sort of stuff. So this time, I said, oh, you're going, are you? And when are you going? She said, around October. And I said, that's interesting. I didn't say yes, I just said, that's interesting. And she mentioned it about two or three times, and I just kept on saying, that's interesting. And then it's now November, and she's still in Ireland, and she's not going to Australia. So you don't have to jump on everything. Does that make sense? Yeah, don't jump. Some of it is just a testing ground. It's like... You know the way you used to throw stones at windows to see if they'd break? (laughs) You'd start off with a little pebble. And it's a bit like that. They're throwing little stones at you to see how you'll react. So I wouldn't be worried about opinions. Action is a different matter. If they state values, which you know to be false and unhelpful, it's not that important. If they begin to act them out, that is very serious. And then you have to step in and stop that. Don't be surprised by the argument. And this is not a lessening of the relationship. So let's say next year, it will be worse next year. Might as well tell you that now. right? So let's say it's worse next year. This doesn't mean that your relationship with her has lessened. It is the difficulties that a 15-year-old daughter, in this case, faces in relating to our father. And as I said, it takes patience and this granting of space, but it can't degenerate into a lack of respect and an unwillingness to take your instruction. So the space is so far. It's like the dog on a leash. You know those leashes nowadays which are very long? The dog thinks he's free. It's a bit like that. <laughs> 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 <Right>? <laughs> yes.
3: I just wanted to ask, if there's a lot of arguments between brothers and sisters in the family, and you're sort of the referee permanently, um, is there anything you can do? You know, so many meals seem to be destroyed by friction, and I just find it very difficult. There are different talents, you reward different people, so I don't know what they're fighting about.
0: Yes, I understand. Well, there are two choices for you. You can eat in the attic. Or you can appeal to them. Now, the way to do this is, at times, people do not have the strength to do something for themselves. So you don't appeal to them as individuals. You appeal to them as members of a family. You appeal to a bigger unit. And if I can just divert for a second. A lady who came to me, and her husband had died, and she was maybe in her 30s. He died unexpectedly, very tragic situation, and there were two children. And she would have stated that she was suicidal. How close she was to her, not is another matter. But anyway, she felt that she was suicidal. And I gave her all the philosophical reasons as to why suicide was a complete and utter waste of time, but it made no difference. She didn't have the strength for herself to transcend the grief. And I said to her, well, I said, what about for your daughter's sake? You have two daughters, one was 12 and one was 17. Now, if they see that you grieve for the rest of your life, they will enter their own marriages full of fear that their spouses will die. Whereas if you could transcend the grief for their sake, you would do such a service to them to allow them to enter into full relationships absolutely confidently. So for their sake, she had the strength, but not for her own sake. Is that all right? So appealing to a larger circle, sometimes people get the strength. This is why, say, in times of war, so many people will go to war. They will go for their nation's sake. They will fight for their nation. Now, when children are interacting like that, the best thing is to appeal to the family, the family value. And you say, we do not argue at meal hours. This family does not argue. And if they start here, you say you leave the table. You leave the food behind and you leave the table. This is a family value. If you don't want to participate in it, then you don't eat. But this family eats in peace. And you simply do that. Nobody wants to go without food for very long. You only have to do it once or twice. They just need to know that you mean it. It's a bit like Clint Eastwood and Make My Day Punk don't actually have to fire any bullets they only have to believe that you will fire a bullet and it's very very important that they're not allowed to argue they have no right to argue this is a family every member of the family has a right to sit down and enjoy its meal we don't appreciate that we have such power over the children such unbelievable power And we don't use it. I don't mean in a bad way. I don't mean to control or restrict our growth. I mean to guide them. But again, I just tell a story where my son attends, or used to attend John Scott's. So he would have heard a lot of this material, which is dangerous when they get the material as well. (laughs) He was attending a philosophy class, so we were both going home together. So it's about 10 o'clock at night. And he says... Why do I have to obey you? He started this conversation. It's about 11 o'clock at night. I'm tired. (laughs) And he said, why do I have to obey you? And I said, because you're a child. That's why you have to obey me. When you have the use of reason, you will not need to obey me anymore. But right now you do. So he said, okay, when does reason come? And I said, at 16, you have it. And he said, when does it start? And I said, it starts at 10. He said, well, I'm 13, could I half obey you? (laughs) Smart little rat. So I said to him, no, until it's fully developed. I said, it's like passing a test. When you pass the driving test and you're allowed to go out on your own, when you half know how to drive the car, you still need an instructor with you. He said, well, I don't agree. I don't think I have to obey you. So I said, okay, we'll try a different track. I said, you totally and completely depend on me. That's why you obey me. And he says, what do you mean? I said, they're my clothes you're wearing. The food in your stomach is my food. I went down through a whole list of things, which were mine, and he was allowed to have. And he said, well, I don't think I'm completely dependent on you. We live out in Greystones, out in uh, the mountainy area. So I pulled in the car. We were in a country lane about three or four miles from home. I said, get out of the car. You just get out of the car, give me a ring in a week's time and let me know how you got off. (laughs) So he looked at me and he says, "Okay, you win. (laughs) So, you have tremendous authority. My children, when they were 14, or 15 and 16, they used to tell me every so often they were going to leave home when they were 18. I said, no, if you've made up your mind, you can leave now. (laughs) Very simple. Why would I waste my money on you? So you just call the bluff all the time. See, as regards food, they're totally and completely dependent on you. I mean, they're probably not capable of even baked beans on toast or whatever. So you basically cut off the food supply. If they're not going to sit as a family sits at a meal table, then they cannot sit and eat in this family. And they give up very quickly.
3: Yeah. Well actually the, the situation we had was that they came home and one reported that there was an almighty row on the bus where they called awful names to each other. And I responded, I got so angry and I suppose said the wrong thing, said if you have any arguments, bring them home and fight at home. <laughs> yeah. But don't yeah. disgrace us.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Because what would the neighbours think of me?
3: So I, yeah. I just find like, I overreact
2: and I get so angry. And then, you know, as a role model, I just hate the way i behaved.
0: Unfortunately, we are unbelievably lacking in memory when it comes to evaluating 13-year-olds or 14-year-olds. One um, lady came into her philosophy class one night and she was really, really, really annoyed because her 10-year-old son had lost his glasses. And this was the second or third time he'd lost his glasses. And I said to her, they don't make little boys who don't lose their glasses. That's the way it is. So brothers and sisters will argue. And interestingly enough, again, I have a daughter and a son who are adults. And I contributed to a car for them, that they would share a car, which is an unbelievably challenging situation to share something. they would fight like cats and dogs over this thing. If they were arguing, I told them they couldn't come into the sitting room until it was resolved between them. That I wasn't going to have two arguing members of the family in this frozen or agitated atmosphere in the sitting room. So that they had to stay out until they resolved the argument. And they always used to resolve it very, very quickly. I mean, who wants to sit in the kitchen? <laughs> but you have that authority and the thing is to use it and really inappropriate behaviour if they can't follow reason and they won't do it for love then there should be a little bit of pain like the absence of food or whatever it's okay now
2: presumably the question on Australia was a real life question was it? oh yes now and it was your daughter yes now When, of course, you you didn't make any comment on it, I mean, it seems to me that she probably thought, well, Daddy isn't going to pay for it after a while, you know, after the third sort of mention reminding you about it. No, that would have
0: been known before the question was asked. (laughs) 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 Okay. Daughters and sons will know what your silence means. And they know what that's interesting means as well. They know the answer. But you just don't enter the debate. If they set the game, like I'm going to Australia game, and you enter that game, you're lost. They'll just tug you up and down, all the emotional strings will be played. It'll be a, a symphony of emotional strings.
2: But I mean, if she was 18, it may have been perfect. But she may well want
0: to Oh, absolutely. And if so. she does want to go, that's absolutely fine. Yeah. I just don't want her to go. That's just right. a personal thing. So if she, she wishes to go and she decides to go, will I pay for the ticket? Absolutely. <laughs> but I don't want her to go, that's all. Yeah, okay. And it is absolutely valid, obviously, as a father, to state what you believe is valid, but you can't demand it. You can't withdraw fatherhood because a person determines that Australia is where their happiness lies. Yes, anybody else?
3: Having made mistakes maybe with the discipline thing and the pal thing maybe mm. coming in too early, I have a 15-year-old who is, you know, generally speaking, it good-hearted and a lot of good things going for him but you know quite disobedient especially when it comes to study time you know this business of getting them to work and you know he thinks anything beyond homework is not required you know study is just you know even when he's ordered to do it or asked he just refuses point blank most of the time to spend study time but it's sort of um, you know that would be a problem in my house
0: Yes, no, absolutely. But a 15-year-old should be able to relate cause to effect. If you say to a 4-year-old, if you don't learn ABC, you won't get a pension-proof salary. You know, it just doesn't mean anything to a 4-year-old. But a 15-year-old is developing the capacity to relate cause to effect. So you tell him the effect, him or her the effects of not studying. Now... You must be careful about imposing an absolute on a relative situation. Not every child should study. Not every child should excel, you know, so-called excel in the leaving certificate. It may be valueless to some children. It may be absolutely valueless. In fact, a great harm to them. Because that's not where their heart or minds lie. So the thing is to try and find out at 15, the boy should begin to be developing a vision for his life. What he wants to achieve or what he wants to do with his life. If you ask him that, and if he can express that, then you can begin to talk about what is necessary to achieve that. So let's say he says, I want to be a doctor or something like that. And you say, well, you know, that's a very nice ambition for a young man or a woman. However, in order to get that, you need to follow you begin to relate and you relate five years hence back to today and it should be possible to have that conversation but if you say I want you to study that means nothing to him he's not interested in fulfilling your desires do you recognize that the children are simply not interested in fulfilling your desires but they have desires of their own and you simply need to um, you need to appeal to that. So, again, it's only an amusing story, but there were some children in a philosophy group. When I say children, they were about 14 or 15, and they were in a philosophy group, and I was the tutor of that group at the time. And it was coming up to meditation. In the school, if people wish to, they practice meditation. And this group was offered meditation. And one of the young girls, a 15-year-old, said, I don't want to meditate. So I asked her why, and she said, I just don't want to. So I said to her, "Um, do you love your mummy and daddy? She said, absolutely. I said to her, would you like to turn out like your mummy and daddy? And she said, not in a million years. I said, well, if you don't meditate, you will. so she took up meditation <laughs> so that was it, that was using fear there right
3: i would i find your advice very helpful yeah. and just as an example we were thinking of changing our car and i was down in bolsebridge motors with us yes. and uh, the general manager whom i actually know he's a neighbor of mine came over and he said to him he had so much knowledge on cars the general manager said to him would you like a job now he's 15 but looks about 13 and I know he, he's very passionate about certain things, but it's not about study. And I just find it very difficult when you have a parent-teacher meeting and they tell you he should be doing, he's in his junior search year, he'll do his homework, he'll, equip, he'll keep his head above water. He's not interested in study beyond that. Yes. You know. I'm just wondering if he wants to be that doctor in four years' time. That's the problem, you know.
0: Well, what you can do, all that the boy should do is attain fullness of his capacity whatever that is he will have a set of talents which will guide him to a particular career etc etc but at the same time when you're 15 or 16 obviously laziness and all these things are there in their full abundance so this boy has expressed an interest in cars and this man has offered him a job you might ask the man to have a talk with him and say to him that if he wishes to excel in a career such as this he needs to do well in his junior certificate or leading certificate and there you're linking it to something that he likes rather than say get up to that room there and don't let me down so you've got to find it's a bit like that little red alarm box you find something which lights up his being and then you relate study to the achievement of that you're not controlling him or restricting him You're offering him the opportunity to succeed in something that he enjoys.
3: But I would find myself, I mean he has many very fine qualities and talents, but I just feel myself that the points system, I mean it has many advantages, but I don't think it's for everybody. And I think it's killing a lot of that sort of, um, the dream for a lot of kids. Yes,
0: but it's important that you don't fall into that system. It's important that your vision for your child is a happy, fulfilled adult irrespective of the particular job, or absence of a job, as the case may be. So also, if I may say so, what a 15-year-old and younger still will pick up that you are not really interested in their happiness? When you say to them, I want you to study well, it's not their happiness you're seeking. You're seeking success so that you'll be proud, or something like that. Again, a lot of it is the sound of the voice. The sound of the voice has to change. You've got to meet the 15-year-old where the 15-year-old is standing. Does that make sense? Not where you're standing. So you meet them where they're at, and then you lift them up. You know the other way, like say in a Montessori school or a very junior school, You know, the desks are tiny. Well, you've got to get down to meet the child physically at its level. Well, at a 15-year-old, you've got to meet it physically, mentally and emotionally. If you're just shouting from the mountaintop that child should be he's not interested in climbing for your sake thank you very much it's
3: very, most helpful
0: okay. thank you mm. no. Say so one the last question yes back then
1: in one of your very recent lectures you said that patience and love that the more love the more patience yes so wouldn't that apply here and be something, you know, that would be very relevant.
0: Yes, absolutely. The question is, does patience and love apply here? And absolutely. What was also said in that talk, and I think to appreciate, that desire normally imposes an additional speed on the universe. So when you desire to go somewhere, you'll find that as far as you're concerned, everybody's moving too slow you recognize that? So desire is an unnecessary imposition on the universe to speed things up. And what you notice is that you have tremendous desires for your children. Tremendous desires. And there may be a part of you which hopes they'll be little children for a (coughs) long, long time. But there's another part of you which imposes on them a level of maturity which is impossible for their age. And when the desires turn to love then you allow nature to unfold as it will unfold. You know, as parents we're sometimes like amateur gardeners who put down daffodils in November. We dig them up at the beginning of December to see how they're going. We put them back again and we have a lot of luck at Christmas Day. The idea is to leave them there. Nature will run its course. You plant them in good ground and you feed that ground and you let nature run its course. The same way with the child. I'm going to make it a boy. He has his destiny, not your destiny, and he will unfold according to his pace. And you must let him. So patience is absolutely essential. And just as a wise gardener will trust that if he has selected the bulbs properly, and planted them at the right time, and he has fed that ground, he trusts that the daffodil will come. That nature will take care of the rest. If you have been careful about the company that the child has and given it a good education and you have reared it based on love and discipline as outlined there, nature will produce the daffodil for you. You need not have any concerns about that. And temporary aberrations at around 14, 15 and 16 and maybe sometimes continuing until they're about 19 or 20. You need not worry about that. That means you do worry about their behavior, but not their interaction with you. They will become tense. That's just growing up. All that is important is that they don't lose respect for you, and they acknowledge you as the father or the mother. But I would not be concerned about the tensions. You just have to be patient. They will get through this and then, just like we started off, they begin to um, value your presence again. I'll just repeat that last sentence because it really is all in this. If you remember this, you actually can't go wrong. Up to the age of five, treat the child with love and play. From five to 16, put him under discipline and afterwards treat him like a friend. Find out what is true love, find out what true discipline is, and find out what it means to be a true friend. So, good luck.